Hello, friends. Welcome to this week's episode of Currently Workshopping, a show where we talk about the perils and frisson of being alive. I'm your host, Cece, and in today's episode, we will be discussing one of my favorite topics, scams and scammers. Before we get into it, a huge thank you to Airhole and Malikika for rating and leaving a review. I really appreciate it, and it does really mean the world to me when um, starting on something new and scary like this. So thank you, truly. One of my paranoid fears is always like dropping the ball on a project or providing low-quality content and then getting called a scammer. But, you know, I've already been called a grifter. I'm running a mental health fundraiser this week in honor of World Mental Health Day, which was on Monday. I am matching all of your donations up to $1,000. So, you know, we could donate up to $2,000 to four wonderful organizations who are making a lot of waves when it comes to mental health policy and programs. I've dropped the link to the fundraiser below. So if you have it in you to donate, I am unfortunately asking you for money. Sorry. Um, But you know what? I've already been called a grifter. So maybe the ship has sailed on that and I am indeed a grifter. Okay, let's roll into the workshop. I know scammers is a huge object of fascination for a lot of people, including me. I'm not really sure what draws me to scams and scammers, but initially I suspected it was because they were something that I wasn't confident, like to the nth degree. People love the term imposter syndrome these days, and it's funny because the term wasn't really widely used back when I was experiencing it the most in college. Merriam-Webster added the term to its dictionary only in April 2020, which is kind of recent if you think about it, but its first use can actually be traced to a psychology article by two women, naturally, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, although they use the term imposter phenomenon. Viola Davis then used the term imposter syndrome in a Vanity Fair interview in 2017, and I think that probably really propelled that term into popular lexicon. I felt imposter syndrome, although I didn't really know there was a term for this phenomenon, so much in college. It was the most unsettling experience, honestly. I was a huge people pleaser, still kind of am, and at all points in my life, I am really eager to fit in, which meant that, you know, I graduated high school in California as a pretty prototypical California girl, lots of pink and bright clothing, an unfounded eagerness when it comes to uh, meeting people for the first time and really cavalier with hugs. I'm a huge believer in that saying Californians are nice, but not kind. And New Yorkers are kind, but not nice. Like I knew there was this one girl um, back in high school who hated me because I dated her older brother and she still would hug me hello and goodbye when we were in the same environment. I thought that was like really normal back then, but now having been on the East Coast for a number of years, I realized that's a little two-faced. Okay, so I'm pretty much this California girl a la Katy Perry, and while I knew there were rich people in the world, a few girls on my high school dance team had Chanel earrings and Ugg boots, which kind of became my symbols for wealth for whatever reason. I was not prepared for the level of wealth that I would see at Yale. Chanel earrings and Ugg boots were like pocket change for these people. It wasn't even like I was trying to be nosy about my classmates' financial situations. It just comes up naturally in conversations because we're all freshmen. We're all trying to figure out who to be friends with, who's who, and whose parents are. It's just kind of easy pickings for conversation with someone. And it was interesting. It's interesting to know who the daughter of the fourth richest man in India is. It's interesting to know that another girl was an heiress. It was interesting to know that some celebrity's daughter or grandson was among us. I mean, the popularity of demois and celebrity gossip 
please. And add on to that developing 18-year-old minds who probably spent the past 15 years being called nerds and now we could reinvent ourselves. Of course we gossiped about who people's parents were. I'm sure many of us Yale freshmen were trying to social climb. This shouldn't be a surprise because we were at Yale. Going there in the first place is a signal that we were trying to climb the social ladder, no? Isn't that what they say certain elite education is in the first place? social mobility. And I think that's why higher education, including college and of course law school, gets called a scam sometimes. It is selling a hope, a dream, an idea that does not get realized for some. Maria Konnikova, a psychologist and the author of the book, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It, every time says this of con artists. Con artistry works because we want it to work, because it appeals to something that's very deeply human, which is our beliefs, our need for hope, our optimism, the fact that we see the world differently than it actually is. Everyone is vulnerable to this, even if you don't think you are. We'll get into why I think scams work in a moment, but first I wanna get into exactly how universal they are. Scams are a tale as old as time because the human condition is a tale as old as time. The earliest recorded scam was in three BC when a Greek merchant, Hegestratos, tried to commit insurance fraud by sinking his own cargo ship. There were scams in the Victorian era as well, but because the landed gentry were such a small part of the population and the rest of the population were really poor, the pool of people that had disposable income that you could actually scam was much smaller than in the modern era. Nate Henley, the author of The Big Con, theorizes that the rise of the economic middle class in the early 20th century provided more potential victims for con artists. And then you also had trains becoming more of a thing. And this ability to scam and then move on quickly to your next mark in another city made conning quite attractive. One popular scam during this time was the Spanish prisoner scam, which essentially told of someone stuck in a far off prison, usually in Spain, who promised repayment and then some once they got out. But you had to pay for them to get out of prison. This was basically an early version of the Nigerian prince email scam that we saw in the early 2000s. I definitely got those. Where you received an email from someone purporting to be a Nigerian prince who needed a bit of money in order to access a ton of money, some of which the prince would then share with you. In the modern era, instead of innovations like train, we have the anonymity of the internet and social media representations of ourselves. Konakova said that cons always thrive in moments of transition. Events like the Industrial Revolution, Westward Expansion, and the Gold Rush were fertile ground previously for scams, and in the modern day, we have what Konakova calls a technology technological revolution and a social media revolution. Let's take those two revolutions and changes in technology and social media, respectively, and examine why they provide such fertile ground for scams and scammy behavior that might not arise to the level of being scams, but are still scammy. New technologies have allowed for scammers to find new disguises for their scams, even as the scams remain relatively the same over time. A well-known scam is the Ponzi scheme, which is named after Charles Ponzi stole $20 million from investors in 1920 by repaying existing investors with money from new investors. He repeated this, so on and so forth. This relies on a perpetual supply of new people to enter into the scam. Okay, at this point, you should be thinking to yourself, doesn't this sound familiar? A business that continually relies on the influx of new marks to sustain itself? I mean, this is pretty much what people mean when they use the term MLM in a derogatory manner. The multi-level marketing company that stereotypically gets hawked by some girl from your high school that you haven't talked to in a million years. But I will say that not all MLMs are bad. I did some legal research while at the law firm about required disclosures for MLMs, and honestly, the FTC is pretty good about investigating and enforcement. The FTC, by the way, does distinguish between MLMs 
MLMs more generally, and illegal pyramid schemes, which are a subset of MLMs. There's often a lack of nuance when it comes to our colloquial use of terms, right? Like in last week's episode, I do think influencer is sometimes used as a pejorative term, even though being an influencer isn't necessarily negative. Similarly, some MLMs are pyramid schemes, which are deceptive, but not all MLMs are deceptive. Okay, so again, let's get specific with our terminology. A Ponzi scheme is what Charles Ponzi did. He got money from new investors in order to pay back earlier investors. Existing investors didn't have to recruit new investors into the fund. A pyramid scheme, on the other hand, operates through existing members needing to recruit new members into the scheme. Pyramid schemes are illegal. A legitimate MLM might look a lot like a pyramid scheme, but the difference is that all distributors in an MLM should mostly be selling to consumers who are not part of the company. Like if their financial incentive is just to sell products to normal people instead of recruit them into the MLM, then it's a good indicator that the MLM is just a legitimate operation. So this is the big issue that companies like LuLaRoe got into. Are they a legitimate MLM or an illegal pyramid scheme? They sell leggings, so they're not a Ponzi scheme, but who do they sell those leggings to? In the lawsuit filed against LuLaRoe by the state of Washington, the government claims that it was clear that the primary opportunity for compensation was not through sale of LuLaRoe apparel, but bonuses earned through recruiting. If that claim is true, then LuLaRoe would be an illegal pyramid scheme and therefore a scam. The sinister thing about both Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes is that early entrants do indeed make out with profits. So in the modern era of social media, we see these people like us, or perhaps even people whom we know, showing us everything that they legitimately did to make money from a new business venture. And it's convincing to us. It's the highest form of testimony, right? Seeing your friend or a friend of a friend suddenly make a ton of money. And we think to ourselves, if they can do it, why can't I? More recently, we have crypto. Celsius, a crypto lender, went bankrupt earlier this July. Basically, Celsius wanted to operate like a traditional bank. You deposit your crypto assets within Celsius, and Celsius would hold onto it and pay interest on your deposit. And like a traditional bank, if everyone were to withdraw their assets from Celsius all at once, there would be a bank run. On June 12th, Celsius froze all customer assets because it couldn't guarantee payment if all customers withdrew at the same time. It's almost like they would have to have new customers make new deposits in order to let existing customers withdraw their crypto. So I guess it's not surprising then that one of the lawsuits against Celsius claims that Celsius was running a Ponzi scheme. Essentially, these new technologies, email, social media, crypto, present an opportunity for age-old scams to disguise themselves in new ways. Like sure, we think we would know what a modern day Ponzi scheme would look like, but when you throw in a layer of crypto, new technology, it does end up looking different enough that you might not recognize it. And I mean, I have friends who literally put down payments on houses with money from Bitcoin that they bought in 2013. Like, I wish I had done that. I still don't know if crypto will stick around in the long run, but I certainly wish I had bought crypto back in 2013. Not really, though, because of environmental reasons, and I was actually just way too risk averse back then for crypto. But I do kick myself a little bit sometimes for not doing it because, hey, maybe I could also own a house right now rather than be looking at a lifetime of perpetual renting. And then the second revolution that we're currently facing, the social media revolution, also has significantly contributed to the opportunities for scams to arise because social media makes it easier to mislead. I mean, social media is all about portrayal of self and that portrayal can be significantly embellished. Honestly, one of my biggest fears about my current project of writing a book is that I'll wind up like Carolyn Calloway, sign a book deal, knock on wood, and then just be unable to produce. Like, what if I choke? What if I get that advance and end up staring at my empty Word document? Or worse, what if I panic write it and it ends up bad? Like, really bad. 
Point is, there have been plenty of examples of influencers in the past few years over-promising and under-delivering. Carolyn Calloway, of course, and Brittany Dawn, a fitness influencer accused of scamming her followers who had signed up for her fitness program, which was supposed to include personalized fitness plans, weekly check-ins, and email support from Brittany Dawn. Customers allege that their plans weren't personalized and that they would sometimes go weeks without any communication. Part of me wonders if they meant for their endeavors to become scams though, or if they just bit off more than they could chew and didn't have a smart PR plan or fix around how they were going to address their inability to deliver. Like I've certainly been there with work too. There were times at work where I would look at my schedule and I would think to myself, there's just no way that I am going to be able to get everything done. And I would have to go to the partner or the client and ask them if a future date would still be fine. And that was just part of managing yourself at work. I think a lot of influencers don't have that experience managing customer expectations like that. So they just kind of drop the ball and hope no one notices. One of my favorite frameworks for thinking about our modern day digital world is Jean Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulations. The theory is that in the postmodern era of mass media and mass reproduction, we live in a world where signs, symbols, images assume independent meaning apart from the object which they purport to represent. And it is possible for images to not be accurate depictions of the object that they portray, but still have meaning and existence in the world. Baudrillard calls these inaccurate images that still have meaning simulacra the singular being simulacrum. For example, an accurate representation of self on social media might be like, you get a large sum of money randomly for whatever reason, maybe a bonus, you buy something nice like a watch or bag or whatever floats your boat, and then you take a photo of yourself with the item and post it online. The simulacrum might look the same, you with that watch or bag or whatever nice thing you have, but the reality of the situation might be that you can't afford the watch or bag. Maybe it's your friends or maybe you're only taking a photo of it and are then going to return it. Whatever the situation may be, because the simulacrum, this photo, has power on social media, that photo, regardless of whether you actually buy the watcher bag, has meaning in society as well if you show it to others on social media. In this way, you can see how we could very well prioritize the simulacrum over the actual object or reality. Like it becomes more important for us to be depicted as having luxury items than it is for us to actually have them. Baudrillard calls this privileging of the simulacrum over the reality, the precession of simulacra. And with social media, we really do see how the simulacra precedes the reality nowadays. Burgeoning influencers might take photos with things they can't afford or rent fancy hotel rooms with a ton of other influencers just for the photos to signal to brands and companies looking at their grids that they are the type of influencer that the brand should associate itself with. It's the pure embodiment of fake it until you make it, except the fake Faking it is all happening online. And sometimes faking it online does eventually lead to making it. I think this is why I found Anna Delvey so fascinating. She did this faking it until she almost made it, both on social media and in real life. So why do we find scammers and con artists so fascinating? There's something to their confidence, that fake it until you make it attitude, that assurance that they will succeed. And I think if you feel imposter syndrome in any environment, it becomes comforting almost to be with someone who feels completely comfortable, nay, like completely entitled to something that you're struggling with accepting as your own. It does seem to stem a lot from our 
our own insecurities. Not only do we admire and want their confidence, but this plays upon our own fears that we are not interesting, that we are not the main characters. Konnikova posits that the crux of an effective scam is a good story, and scammers are the best at storytelling. When we ourselves are not sure what our own story is, because let's be real, it's really hard to know in the moment where your life is going, right? Where your story is going. Life changes all the time, and it almost feels presumptuous to state what your own story is going to be ahead of time. That being the case, it's easy, almost appealing to get sucked into someone else's story, someone else who is so confident and sure that their life is an amazing story. On some level, I think we all want to be the main character, but we are worried that we might not be or are too afraid to take the steps to truly embody our own main character. And if we're not going to be our own main character, we might as well be next to the main character, the celebrities, the money, the power, so we can see what happens, right? In fact, there's books and articles about adjacency to scammers. Natalie Beach wrote that famous I Was Carolyn Calloway's Ghostwriter article, and Rachel Williams wrote a whole book, My Friend Anna, about her interactions with Anna Delvey. I met my first alleged scammer a few months ago, Martin Shkreli, and it was honestly such a weird encounter. I'll be talking more about that on my Patreon, so be sure to head over there to listen to the episode postscript. After meeting him, I feel like I kind of understood where this impulse to be associated with fame or fortune or high social status or whatever comes from, because my parents and I had very strong ideas about how to elevate our social and financial circumstances as well. Education. Yeah, I'll admit it. I went to Yale to climb the social and financial ladder. It had been imprinted on me since I was 12 that the Ivy League would somehow do that for me. I didn't even really double check if that was true. The moment I got into Yale, I was like, well, I have to go because of all the media portrayals of Yale. Rory Gilmore went there, after all. The simulacrum of Yale definitely preceded Yale itself by that point. Luckily for me, the simulacrum of Yale still bore resemblance to the realities of Yale and the opportunities that it opened for me. But what if it hadn't? What if the simulacrum of college had gotten so distant from the reality of college? Well, of course, I definitely would have gotten scammed then. I think that is such a large part of why we find scammers so fascinating and why we ourselves are drawn to people and events with scammy features. We want to believe that it is true. The human condition can't get rid of our longing for the seemingly impossible to become possible, whether it's overcoming our imposter syndrome through association with a confident con artist, or getting rich quickly by wiring $20,000 to a Nigerian prince, or making a huge advance in blood testing by investing in Theranos. We want to feel like we belong, like we contributed to advances in humanity, like our own lives are full of possibility and limitless potential. Ironically, I think it's those very same impulses that fuel scammers, con artists, and grifters. They just act upon those impulses in ways that disregard all others, which is the real problem. Not their motivation or ambitions, really, but the way they go about trying to make it happen, the how. I'll admit, I'm a huge Theranos geek. I've seen, listened to, and read pretty much every single Theranos show, documentary, podcast, book. The thing that made Holmes so fascinating to me was she truly seemed to believe that her goals were going to manifest. She just needed a little more time, a little more money, a little more. And that's when I'm like, whoa. When have I myself thought that? When people ask me how my sabbatical is going, I usually tell them every day and every week I disappoint myself. And I'm not lying. That's genuinely, unfortunately, how I feel. As I watch my sabbatical fund dwindle, even as I know that the intent of the fund is for it to run out. But as I watch it get smaller and smaller, I do sometimes think to myself, if I just had more money, if I just had more time, I'm sure I could make it. 
maybe we all have a little bit scammer in us then. Maybe we should all have a little bit scammer in us too, because no matter what our insecurities or fears tell us, our own lives are full of possibility and limitless potential. Now, this ties into a question I got asked on my Patreon by Gio about the soft skills that are helpful for big law interviews and working in big law, or really most corporate environments. I was originally going to answer it on the Patreon postscript only, but you know what? I actually think it's important information to have publicly available, so I am answering it on here. I cover a lot of these unwritten soft skills that are helpful in the corporate settings in my Invisible Rules series of short form videos, because I really do agree that these rules are unwritten and not taught in schools, but are hugely important. From my experience, there are four major soft skills that really, really help in corporate settings, and a lot of them are scammer skills. First, recognizing that your conversation skills and showing up to social events do matter. If the senior folks at work know who you are and think of you positively, that is way more helpful than having done all of your assignments on time and with excellent quality, but no one knows who you are. So those supposedly dumb social events that you think won't help, they will. And the better your conversational skills are, the better off you will come. I was once interviewing law students for big law summer associate positions, and one partner straight up told me, I just want candidates who I can have a good conversation with. That's how important conversation skills are. Companies will often have these pre-interview recruiting happy hours or receptions or something like that, right? And when the employees, when I went, were asked to afterwards pass on the names of any candidates that really stuck out to us. Conversation is a pretty hard skill to refine and to home because people honestly vary a lot. But if you can practice conversing with a variety of people and get comfortable with it, that skill pays off enormous dividends. Second, being a good storyteller in your communications, whether it's your interview, a due diligence memo for an M&A, or just a scheduling email to a client. Remember, a story has a beginning, middle, and an end. Always tell the audience what the background or starting point is, the beginning, what the update or relevant events have been since that starting point, the middle, and propose what the next steps should be, the end. So often I'll see communications that don't have the beginning or don't propose a potential end. And those are just weaker, less compelling communications because it requires the audience, which is usually the partner or a client, to take the additional mental effort to remind themselves of what the beginning was or to think of possible ends themselves. When you reread your stuff back to yourself, ask yourself whether you have a beginning, middle, and end or whether you've inadvertently left out one of those parts. If you've covered all of those parts, then you're probably already successfully managing up, which is another soft skill that I found really helpful in demanding work environments. Third, know how to promote yourself without being self-promotional. This is a tough one because I do think culturally a lot of Asian cultures frown on self-promotion, but it's absolutely necessary in the modern workplace and even as a freelancer. Learn how to slip in tidbits about work that you've done or successes that you've had without making it seem like every time someone says something, you're also jumping in to brag about yourself. It's a fine line to straddle, and the best way to figure out how to do this effectively is to develop a really good relationship with someone more senior at work who can help you figure it out. Because appropriate promotion is so environmentally dependent. I'm always astounded by what the general online public thinks is bragging because it's so different from when my colleagues think something is bragging. And lastly, being able to develop a sense of the office political landscape and hierarchy. I made a TikTok about how to do this, and I really do stand by its importance, especially for minorities. There are so many egos in the workplace, and one of the easiest ways to shoot yourself in the foot is to accidentally insult someone's ego by asking someone else for approval or something dumb like that. Should it matter? No. Does it matter? 
Not always, but when it does, it can matter a lot. And it's just not a gamble I'm willing to take when I could be strategic about it instead. Like, I want to play Texas Hold'em poker and not roulette, you know? And that's all for this week, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode and aren't walking away thinking that I've scammed you out of the last 30 minutes or so. I've linked the articles that I've referred to in the show notes below, as well as my website, where you can find all of my socials and other projects. If you enjoy this episode, I'd really appreciate your taking the time to subscribe and leave a review and I'll do a shout out on next week's episode for you. See you then.